As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Selling a little... Or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. Good evening. After serving more than 20 years behind bars, Jason Roberts is tonight a free man. A Supreme Court jury today found him not guilty of the murders of Sergeant Gary Silk and Senior Constable Rodney Miller in Moorabbin in 1998. The sensational verdict has devastated the families of the slain officers. 
So this is a bit of an explainer for you, our listeners, because there was a very big case that came to an end, I think it's the end, last week in Melbourne. Um, And it involves some of our friends, people who are close to our hearts and have been guests on our show. Jason Roberts, 41 years old, was freed for the first time in 22 years last week uh, by the Supreme Court of Victoria. He was 17 years old when two police officers, Silk and Miller, were shot in the street. It's a very, very infamous case in Australia. And uh, he was one of two accused who were convicted all those years ago. It's complicated and we definitely needed help. And that's why you're here, Adam Cooper, journalist with The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. Your reportage has been excellent. Were you in the court on the day? Uh, hi, Michelle. Yes. Yes, I was. Um, thank you for that. It's one of those things. It's it's a strange sort of environment reporting in courts now in our COVID sort of environment. So, yeah, it does sort of limit in terms of how much we can be in the courtroom. But, yeah, um, when the verdict was handed down, uh, we were in, allowed in the public gallery and we could see the reaction of um, just the Silk Miller and families and what the verdict the other day meant for them, the devastation it caused um, the enduring grief and sadness they've had for so long. Um, and then, yeah, even after they left court and the minutes that followed, you can see just what an impact it's had and it, it, that would be felt right through the uh, Victoria Police. Absolutely. I was watching on Zoom actually and I was I was stunned by the, um, by the outcome. I, go, I suppose it sort of would have been stunning either way because even the judge commented that it was a particularly gruelling case or a gruelling trial, wasn't it? Why was that? Well, it's gruelling, yeah, for several reasons. Um, not many murder trials run to three and a half months. And so this one was extraordinary in that regard. So yeah, to deal with the the COVID problems now, uh, courts often lo- lose jurors when they become unwell. And so they're discharged. So to, to safeguard against that, the judge um, selected 15 jurors. They lost a couple of jurors through as the trial progressed. They had a couple of week long COVID disruptions um so that was from a logistics point of view made it made it difficult the the sheer weight of evidence that the the jury had to listen to there were 90 odd witnesses there were hours of recorded conversations they had to listen to there was dense sort of legal argument put to them um and then you know sort of a, a bit of a throwback to the old days that when the deliberation came the jury was actually sequestered and and put. They stayed each night in a in a hotel or in, in accommodation, mm. which doesn't tend to happen now. Um, but yeah, the judge wanted them to retain their focus at that crucial stage. So, yeah, there was a lot a lot for them to consider. And also, I mean, some of the just looking at the jurors, you would imagine that at least half of them um, would have their own memories from when you know those Silk and Miller murders happened years ago, and so. Uh, juries are instructed to to put all that sort of emotion and past memories and what they knew about cases aside. But, yeah, like you said, it's such an infamous case. It, it would have sort of, yeah, it would have stayed with some people a long time. So, yeah. Even the description of the crime and its immediate aftermath is chilling. To put it into context, it was happening in, it happened in 1998, is that right? That's right, yeah. And at that time, stick up guys, old-fashioned sort of, bank robbers um, and hold-up guys were started to to attack uh, sort of low-risk and um, small businesses around Melbourne, around the suburbs, because we've heard before on this show that, that security in banks and those places stepped up, the technology stepped up, and it made it really difficult to, to hit those places as they had before. 
And so there became this trend where these guys started hitting small businesses like restaurants, for example. Yeah, that's right. That, so these bandits, they, they nominated and targeted um, restaurants that would be run by families. So there'd be a handful of staff. They, they looked at targeting them at closing time so there wouldn't be many people in the building at that time. And obviously after a, you know, a, a busy Saturday night or whatever, the, you know, the cash register would be full. Yeah. It's so long ago that we're, in some of the businesses we're talking, you know, the, the checks were kept in the cash tin. So that's sort of, you know, what sort of era we're talking about. Mm. Soft targets, I think that w- police would have called them. So in, yeah, in isolated sure. areas on sort of arterial roads where they could do a quick getaway. Um, and on unsuspecting targets. Yeah. So this is how this crime came about. Not only were there bandits, as we're calling them, um, staking out a potential uh, place to rob, but also there were police staking it out, keeping an eye out for robbers staking it out. Yeah. In the case of Gary Silk and Rodney Miller, they were sitting that night on a you know cold Saturday night outside a restaurant called the Silky Emperor on Warrigal Road in Moorabbin. That part of Moorabbin is sort of warehouses, indoor sports centres, factories and so on. So pretty isolated, not a lot of traffic going through. Um, so on a Saturday night, you know, the restaurant had a handful of staff inside, all the customers had gone. So I guess towards closing time, when you see a car cruising slowly past the Silky Emperor as a copper, you think, okay, this one's worth pulling over. Yeah, and so, and and like I said, sort of being um, just a reasonably isolated area for you know, Melbourne suburbs, um, this car would have been suspicious to an extent in that it came into the, the car park of the restaurant and then drove out again. Um, it was also Bendali Debs's daughter's car. So I wonder if it was um, on a list, would it have been, would her rego have been, because he was certainly a, known to police. Yeah, he was known to police. Um, he said in his evidence that he was, um, he would use either his car or his daughter's car and he, you know, he had so many cars throughout his criminal career. Um, but he also wanted things to look relatively normal and, yeah. and not suspicious. So he would use cars. He wouldn't use fake number plates, for example. No. Um, so he didn't want to attract attention. And, you know, if he if he was pulled over, he would sort of, you know, claim he was, you know, just driving through the area or for work or, you know, what have you. Hmm. Um, yeah, so it was his daughter's car they were in. Um, and then, yeah, Silken Miller saw the car come in and out go into the, come into the, the restaurant car park and then drive out again and decided to check it out. Um, at that point, they hadn't radioed it in, so it, it didn't seem overly suspicious to them at that sense, not enough to warrant, you know, calling it in and giving the rego, mm. um, but just decided to check it out. And it things evolved very quickly, didn't they, from that moment? That's right, yeah. It went from a situation that looked completely normal. In fact, two other police officers drove past and saw Silk and Miller outside the car talking to a the driver. They, um, they saw them talking to one man. However, they also reported that both doors of the other car were open. That's right. That the, the front passenger door as well as the f- driver's door were open. Yeah. And so the, the po- two police officers who, dr- who drove past saw that, but still it didn't sort of raise their alarm enough to, to stop and provide backup. They drove past slowly but it still to them looked like it was just a routine, what they'd call a routine interception. So they drove on, pulled into a side street. Their view from there was obscured by the building that sort of was on the corner. So they couldn't see what happened. And of course, they heard what happened. Yeah, like moments later. So uh, who raised the alarm? So it was uh, it was those two officers. They heard gunshots. Ah. Yeah, and they immediately um, ran to the back of their car, 
and and in those days, police officers kept their bulletproof vests in the in the boot while they're struggling to you know pull these vests out um, of the little capsule they're kept in and put them on. They heard this you know I, I think it was three series of gunshots, and by that stage they were worried for their own safety. They were worried about their colleagues' safety, and they were desperate to see what was going on. So they I think in the end they said in their evidence they were. They actually discarded putting the trying to you know get the bulletproof vests on. Got in their car, and um, they saw the Hyundai drive past them, not in a mad panic, but just slowly, calmly drove away. And then at that point, they drove out onto Cochrane's Road, did a U-turn, and then saw Silken Miller's car and got out and took and investigated. And at that point, they found Silk's body; he was dead, um, but they couldn't find Miller, who was missing. So they saw the Hyundai, which was um, Bendali Deb's daughter's car. Um, we didn't mention before that it was the Hyundai. So they saw that car drive past them. Did they, in their evidence, did they say that they, how many passengers they saw in that car at that time? I think it was, they were still working on the theory of one, mm. yeah. Um, both officers separately gave evidence saying they'd saw, they'd seen one person. So they, those officers never reported more than one? No, um, and they... I don't think they actually gave, said that they got a good look at the driver. They were more focused on looking at, they said they were, the evidence they gave was that they were more focused on watching their mm. colleagues just to check out that everything was okay. And one of them said, in fact, that he was also really concerned that the the slow way this car drove off gave him the impression they might even, that, that the car, the Hyundai, might do a U-turn and come back and target those Two officers. So, yeah, that would be. There's some of the you know decisions um, that police have to encounter in those sort of scenarios, in which a split are just second. yeah, ex- chillingly you know extraordinary sort of circumstances. So, yeah, they chose to, or the decision they made was they saw the car pass, and rather than pursue that car, they drove out and just to check on their colleagues. I must admit the the detail that had escaped me until this recent uh, trial was the fact that. Uh, Constable Miller wasn't on the scene when they got back. This poor man, I didn't realise that he had, you know, tried to get away from that scene. Yeah, so he he was shot in the chest and mm. um, somehow on this dark road he's staggered about 150 metres. Unbelievable. Back to the, the restaurant they were staking out earlier and um, some of the, the restaurant staff actually gave evidence saying they saw and heard this man lying down on the on the footpath outside. Um, because he was in plain clothes that night because they were doing a stakeout, they didn't know who he was. And they also saw him holding a gun, waving it around. So that naturally they didn't know what the heck was going on. And so Because as small business owners, they were well yeah, aware Exactly, yeah. That businesses like theirs were being targeted by gun wielding bandits. Yeah. Um and so they weren't justified well, mm. yeah, justifiably you could argue, um, prepared to, yeah, worried and concerned and not prepared to go outside. So they called triple zero and it was all amid this sort of chaos that police were arriving. It was being radioed, put over the the police radio. So, you know, police units from all over the southeast suburbs were racing to, to that point. They were getting out. They were being told to put on bulletproof vests. Um, There were some officers in plain clothes who had been doing the stakeouts so it was a case of, you know, just checking who was who. There were paddocks where it was pitch black, no one knew. So there was a, a concern that there was a gunman on on the loose. Yeah, so you could imagine 
the terrifying scene. And, yeah, at that point one of the officers heard Miller crying out and a couple of them raced to him. We've actually got audio. Um, did they replay the audio in court of the dispatches? Yeah, they it's, did. It's unbelievable, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's, it's chilling, yeah. Mm. Um, just what strikes me is how calm they all yeah. seem despite – you know, despite those sort of circumstances, they know that there's been um, gunshots fired. They know within sort of moments of that that an officer's down and it's not long after that that they actually broadcast an officer, you know, one of the officers had died, that was Silk, yet there's this sort of composure and, you know, the way they're able to handle that sort of crisis. Um, the training kicks in. It's yeah. extraordinary to, to yeah. listen to, isn't it? It is, yeah, it's amazing. Now, um, the I believe it was a young constable who ended up being with Miller in that moment, literally cradling him in his final moments. He was very young and very new to the job, wasn't he? Yeah, so that's um, Brad Gardner. He was like the junior constable that yeah. night. So I think there were uniformed pol- patrols all around and, and it's hard to sort of keep track exactly how many officers were with the injured um, Miller at the time, but mm. it sounds like possibly six to seven um, and some of them were sort of just doing what, whatever they could to, to cradle, cradle him and comfort him because he was crying out that, you know, he feared he was going to die. So he was in immense pain. Um, of course, you know, the other officers are looking out for their own safety and one of them was sort of broadcasting what uh, Miller was saying over the police radio just so to other police who were sort of meanwhile setting up roadblocks on major roads throughout the suburb. Because this is a witness statement that he's providing. Yeah, and so in Gardner's case, he got out his pen and paper and started writing down what was being said. Very significant. It was, yeah, and it was a crucial part of the trial because um, it's that sort of that plank of the evidence um, is referred to as the the so-called dying declaration evidence. So Miller's words um, in terms of, you know, there were two, two, one on foot. Um, they were that was sort of the the immediate sort of response police, or the, the I guess the immediate information that the only thing police had to work with at that point. So, yeah, it's so literally the, the quote, the, the words are two, one on foot. That's right. Right. Yeah. Yep. Two, one on foot, because most recently the argument has been, well, does that necessarily mean? There were two offenders and one's on foot. Yeah, and the interpretation of what he said was a big part of it. Because 22 years ago that was accepted as, of course, it, that's what yeah. it means. Yeah. And, in fact, one officer said that in the in the chaos of it all, he he said he heard two, one on foot, but actually got onto the police radio and broadcast two, two on foot. So you can sort of imagine even then there was a bit of, I guess, in back, uh, ambiguity in terms of what it exactly was said in what context it was said. And naturally, you know, at this point, Miller's sort of fighting for his life. So, And um, everyone's freaking out. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we've just talked a lot about everyone's training kicking in and all of that, but it is an extraordinary situation and yeah. this man is, is dying and, yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, there's a human reaction to it mm. all, of course. Um, some of those officers who gave evidence in the trial now, it's, you know, it's almost coming up to 24 years since this happened and you can see the trauma you know, that they they still experience um, how it would have, what sort of impact it would have had on them over the years and especially having to relive it um, through various court hearings over the oh, years. Yeah. There was the subsequent statement in the back of the ambulance though, um, the get those cunts yeah. statement. Now yep. who, who reported that and how many people were said to have heard that? Because that obviously goes to back up the first statement of there being more than one offender. Yep. 
Um, there were various. So another officer um, named Michael Steendham, um, he said he heard Miller say that as as Miller was being loaded into the ambulance. But mm-hmm. at that point, Steendham said there were no other officers around. Uh-huh. So, and this is, um, again, one of the, the, the crucial parts that the, the defence, you know, put to the jury that, not everyone, not all of these officers could be right in exactly what they heard because a lot of the officers the, or the, the words the officers said they heard, there was just, you know, discrepancies in them, um, subtle discrepancies in, in terms of the ordering of the words, exactly what was said. The defence said, well, that's what lawyers sort of point to in, in terms of credibility and reliability. So a witness might be credible and think they're telling the truth, but you know, the evidence they're giving might not be reliable for whatever reason. And in this case, it might be the trauma at the time and the passage of time. Mm. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. How does Constable Pullen get involved? His, his statement becomes very, very important. That's right. He was one of the officers who was with Miller and I think in his evidence said that he was comforting Miller um, but where he is crucial, I guess it, it, he's probably a crucial witness, not so much at the trial, but um, his state. But the way his statement was gathered by investigating police became a real focal point in the years after Ben Daly Debs and Jason Roberts were convicted, because um, it came to be, I guess, the the centerpiece of this alleged or or this police misconduct in the way they collected and gathered this information. So it was essentially, yeah, Pullen made one statement to investigating police 
and then months later made a second statement. So he made one statement sort of immediately after the event? Yeah, in the hours afterwards, I believe. And, and then, then 10 months after? That's right, yeah. So a significant time. His first statement didn't contain those words to on, or, or the reference to two offenders, whereas his second statement did. His second statement was backdated by investigating police so it gave the impression that that document was made in the hours after the shooting when his memory was, was most fresh. So basically his initial statement didn't support Brad Gardner's statement and the second one did. That's right. And the second one was made to look or like it was made on, the, on that night. Mm. Um, and so when it came to uh, the committal hearing, and that's the hearing that that's held in the magistrate's court that basically where the defence lawyers get the first chance to sort of test the evidence... It was never raised that Pullen had made two statements. The defence lawyers were working on the assumption that it was just one statement. And so, and that obvious, was the case at trial as well. The obvious question is how did anyone ever figure it out if it was backdated? Whoever realised? Yeah, that's um, that's a sort of a contentious point. It, it sort of emerged years afterwards. So, yeah, Debs and Roberts were convicted, and jail, uh, convicted in 2002 and then jailed the following year. And it wasn't until probably... At, a decade later that Roberts, having exhausted all his avenues of appeal, went to Ron Idles, the homicide oh, detective, so and raised concerns. And then in the years after that, um, when Idles started looking into the matter probably discreetly, that IBAC, the um, anti-corruption mm. um, agency in Victoria, got involved and started scrutinising these statements and, the, and how they were collected. Um, so they began that investigation in 2015 they had, and but that again sort of was a long process. They had public hearings. It wasn't until you know four years later they had public in hearings, and then found that police engaged in misconduct in two thousand and twenty. And on the back of that finding, the court of appeal quashed those original convictions for Debs and Robert. Uh, for, sorry, not for Debs, but for but Roberts. Roberts. Yep. Because this is where our friends get involved, Ron Idles and Charlie Bazina, because Charlie Bazina was the senior officer who signed off on that second statement. That's right, yeah. He was a homicide detective at the time. Um, Senior sergeant. Yeah. Um, I think he's given evidence previously that um, he didn't realise the statement had been backdated. Absolutely not. And at not. the time, uh, you know, uh, it was it was practice for homicide detectives to, or certainly senior ones, to look at a statement and sign off it and assume that everything's all okay. Charlie's position, I know, is that there's a lot of paperwork, I'm a senior... Yeah. And I am signing a lot of stuff. And second to that, I trust my team. So when they present me with paperwork to sign, I, I have a look at it, I read it, and I sign it. And But I know that that position is not accepted by his contemporaries. A lot of them are made, were made very angry by that. Yeah. Because they feel as though that reflects badly on them and other senior sergeants of the day and even today. Is that your understanding? Is that feedback you've received? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's sort of various factors. The morning this happened, like we talked about before, was just a scene of chaos and there weren't, in fact, weren't enough computers at the Moorabbin Police Station to get everyone's statement down. Okay. It was sort of an unprecedented sort of situation. Um, and then what IBAC found was that investigating police didn't want to put the descriptions of offenders in out of concerns that one day those descriptions might not match 
the, the actual descriptions of the of the accused. And in fact, there was one police officer named Helen Polk who gave evidence in this trial. She said that she distinctly remembered Miller talking about a man who was six foot and wearing a check shirt, um, and I believe with dark hair, which would tend to possibly match Bendali Debs at that point. Yet that information wasn't included in her initial statement. So, for whatever reason, investigating police made the decision not to include this so-called dying declaration. Verbatim, uh, basically. Yeah, verbatim in, in those statements. So, mm. and it's, yeah, came back to haunt them. Yeah, really. In terms has. of it, it was the, the springboard for the Court of Appeal to find that Roberts had been denied a fair hearing in his original trial in 2002, and so therefore that conviction was quashed. And in this trial, we'll never know exactly what the jury, you know, what the jury thought of what evidence. But well, even the fact that we've ended up with another trial, it's interesting that you were just talking a second ago about Jason Roberts asking Ron Idles to look into it because I read in your paper in The Age um, just yesterday because I was thinking, how did this start again? I was thinking to myself for weeks, how did this start again? And then I read a story in, in the paper saying, it's unclear how this all started. I, kn- I knew that Ron yeah. had um, taken an official position with Vic Pohl. He'd ended up in this situation where he had been asked, and he always makes this point. He always says, I'm not some vigilante who decided to go and look into this old case. Yeah. I was asked yeah. to review this case because he has ended up in the shit mm-hmm. with a lot of people as a subs- you know, consequence of this. Um, so, yeah, can you explain, as far as you know, how did he end up involved in this? I don't know is the short answer. Exactly. Um, he was, at the time, a respected homicide detective. He'd been a veteran. Yeah, he was a veteran homicide detective. Somehow, through Robert's lawyers, I presume, would have contacted him just so Robert's could say, I want to contact police. People do that every day still, yeah, by the way. Of contact Ron and go, I need your help. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe it was his, you know, his position and that, that recognition factor. Um, he was able to give Idles some information in terms of where some of the um, equipment that Debs and Roberts had used in the hold-up, such as, you know, the duct tape that they used to tie people's arms and, uh, sorry, wrists and legs together, that that was sort of buried out in Gippsland. So he was able to give that information, but that was sort of, I guess that's the first official point where we know that there was sort of a different narrative to what the common sort of belief was. So from, you know, from 2002 onwards, it was always the belief publicly that, yeah, it was two, um, Roberts and Debs. And then, you know, starting in 2013, it would have bubbled away at a behind-the-scenes level, um, I guess starting with Idles, but then Roberts' lawyers sort of pushing what they could until IBAC got involved. So you're saying you think that... um Roberts has been able to give Ron some information that has, I guess, piqued his interest and proven that, look, here's some extra stuff that no one's ever known. It all said in his evidence that he had a concern with Pullen's statement. Yep. And I'm not, he didn't say why he, or he didn't say what he did with that. But yeah, it was enough to raise concern with him in that he contacted Pullen. Mm. And Pullen said, how did you know that? How, how did you know that there were two statements? I thought it was only me and someone else who knew that there were, there were two statements. So whistleblowers also became involved and played their part in terms of, you know, this 
eventually becoming public and IBAC getting involved. And then, yeah, from the IBAC point onwards, it sort of bubbled away until we sort of get to this, you know, peak point 2019-20 where eventually, yes, IBAC ruled the police had engaged in misconduct. So there are a lot of police... In the way they gathered, yeah. Yeah, a lot of police serving and former police who... Um, are very angry with Ron, who think that he has assisted a police murderer with getting out yeah. of prison. I, I mean, he was called as a defence witness in this case and you sort of hear that that, that term and it sort of conjures up this um, thought that he was giving, you know, he was caught being called to provide his expert uh, view on, on the on the defence case and it wasn't that at all. It was, um, you know, it was him sort of giving evidence that Roberts had contacted him I think it was previously said that he, the statement that Roberts had given, was you know credible. Mm-hmm. So that he Roberts wasn't involved. Um, his alibi was that he was yeah. at home with his girlfriend, and and, and, the, and she and, said he was too. Yeah, and the girlfriend Nicole Debs said at the time when she spoke to police that Roberts was with him. Um, she never gave evidence in trial though, mm. at both, both back at two thousand and two and and this time. Um, yeah, so Idles had said it was it was credible, but that's still a long way from saying yeah. I believe him. Yeah, I don't think he did it, or yeah. you know, I think it's yeah. a, as he says. I'm you know, I'm not a. Uh, he's not jumping up and down saying this man's been wrongly convicted and I'm fighting for his freedom. Exactly. He's simply saying, as he does, very conservative statements about the file. Yeah, and on, <laughs> on the flip side of that, though, Pullen um, has also said in in court in that you don't want to be the one whose evidence leads to an accused killer walking free. No. So hence the pressure that would have been on these officers to, you know, if a homicide detective comes to them, to these uniform officers and say, well, we need to sort of flesh out your statement, I, I don't think they would have felt like they were in a position to to really decline. Uh, certainly some of them voiced their disapproval of it, um, you know, that they were un- unhappy with the way that was conducted the whole statement process gathering, um, you know, they'd be feeling the trauma of this, you know, sort of second only to the Silken Miller families. Um, They were with Rod Miller that night. So, Mm. yeah, the the way this, the investigating police conducted themselves, yeah, would jar with them, I would imagine. Um, For his part, Bendali Debs has been very unhelpful, as we would expect. He's in prison in New South Wales, actually. For other crimes, he's since been convicted for two other murders. That's right, yeah. So he was um, he was jailed along with Roberts and convicted of the Silk Miller murders back in 2002 and three. And at that point where Roberts was jailed, Roberts was still a, a very young man. He was um, 17 when, yeah, when these 17 crimes were committed. And, and it's and unbelievable. In his early 20s, I believe, when he was, um, yeah, when he was formally sentenced, whereas Roberts was, uh, sorry, Debs was in his late 40s and at that point had a long criminal history and the judge said, didn't think there was a chance of rehabilitation, so jailed him for life. And then in, in while he was in prison, he was actually found guilty again of two other separate murders, young women he'd picked up to have sex with, one in the Daniel Rangers in, in Melbourne and one in um, Sydney's western suburbs, um, effectively executed them. A horrible man um, yeah. and was jailed for, um, so, you know, given extra life terms. So... There's no doubt of his involvement in um, in 
in the Silken Miller murders. That's never been an issue. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, he was convicted of those separate murders. So, But he wants to be um, brought back to Melbourne, doesn't he, to be closer to family. Yeah. So he's holding out, isn't he, for a deal or something before he'll give evidence or something in, um, in Jason Roberts' case? Well, that was part of his motivation for speaking to police. Mm. So when Roberts was granted a retrial, uh, sorry, yeah, had his convictions quashed and, had, and was granted a retrial, Debs actually contacted homicide detectives and said, I've got something to tell you, essentially, and then was prepared to give evidence for the prosecution. But during his evidence, it, it, it emerged that, yeah, he was in a, he's in a New South Wales jail. He wants to be moved to a Victorian jail to be closer to his family. He wants immunity from, from being prosecuted for the crimes that he committed in the past that he hasn't been done for. Mm. Um, so, yeah, you can... My reading of it was the defence was successfully able to portray him as not only as a man who'd lied before but a motivated liar, mm-hmm. um, so with, with sort of incentives. So he had incentives to speak and to the police um, and that was his reasons for, for doing that. I get the sense that I get the impression that Homicide wouldn't mind speaking to him about some other matters. Yeah, I, I don't know. He has been linked to other crimes. There mm. are some, you know, um, involving women mm. in suburban Melbourne, which sort of matched the the timeline for him. Mm. Um, I mean, it's the the problem with Debs, I guess, is that he's just so unreliable in terms of the evidence he gives. He 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 admitted in his evidence in this trial that previously he lied to police, he lied to his family. Those times where he was recorded, he would budget and say that was just me mucking around or drinking, even though it might be sort of a conversation that was happening nine o'clock in the morning. How much you can accept from him is, yeah, is debatable. Mm. Um, So what happens now? Because Jason Roberts, as part of this process, pled guilty to the 10 armed robberies uh, that he carried out with Bendali Debs prior to this shooting. So... Did we still have a sentencing? I know he was released from, from jail that day, that Monday, that the um, jury returned their verdicts. Yeah, so he was effectively granted bail. Mm. Um, he, yeah, the difference from between 2002 and this trial was back then he denied any involvement in the hold-ups or the murders. This time he said his position was, yes, I did the, the hold-ups with Debs, but I didn't do the shootings. I wasn't there when the shootings happened. Mm. So he pleaded guilty to the hold-ups. But when he was found not guilty of the two murder charges, his lawyers were immediately able to apply for bail and the case for bail was so strong that the prosecutors couldn't object, uh, couldn't oppose it, and the judge released him on bail. So, he, I mean, he's effectively done 22 years in custody. Um, He'll come back and be formally sentenced on the armed robbery charges. Is he likely to get any more time, do you think, for those? It's tricky. You can't read into it, but I would imagine his lawyers would argue that at the time of the armed robberies, he was 17. He was under the influence of a hardened career criminal. He might have feared Bendali Debs himself that time. He had no prior convictions. Um, And then the hardship of having done 22 years in prison Mm. would all be sort of factors that his defence lawyers would raise. So yeah, you can never preempt what a sentencing judge would would have the you know the penalty they'll eventually impose. But yeah, it's probably hard to say that he would spend any more time in prison. Um, I mean, he's long for a long time sort of argued he's he's not guilty of these crimes. So it's hard to fathom, I guess, you know, going into jail at seventeen and you know spending you know at a time when 
you know, like like colleague said to me the other day, September 11 hadn't even happened when oh, he no. went into jail um, as, so a, as a teenage kid. And so many guys have yeah. never held a, an iPhone. Yeah, he didn't even have a, a, a driver's licence back then. So, um, yeah, so he's sort of coming out and got to start again, catching up on people friends and family who he wouldn't have seen for decades. Certainly I know there was a suppression order placed on his um, address on where he's staying um, so that it can't be reported. I can't imagine anyone would report it or certainly not a sort of, you know, mainstream media outlet. Yeah, I would imagine that suppression order too would have been, uh, the judge quickly made it to mm. for possibly for Robert's own safety. Of course, yeah. yeah. That vigilante element or, mm. you know, um, because it's such an emotive case. And, and I think that was probably one of the the, the key things why this sort of why this crime still resonates with so many people in Melbourne is that it shocked us back then. You know, you drive through that area now, and it's still sort of yeah, you can't help but think about it if you're you know my age and yeah and beyond. They were so young too, weren't they, Silk and Miller? Yeah, they were officers in their thirties. One of them, Miller, had just become a father seven weeks earlier, I think. Yeah, so and it had such a profound influence. On, on their colleagues and the force. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime, recorded at a Hub Australia media studio. HubAustralia.com. Find the workspace that's right for you. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. 
As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.